entering the Freedom Hut. As the country prepares for a massive hurricane to make landfall, the media prepares a narrative of Trump's responsibility for everything that could possibly go wrong as a result of this natural disaster. We'll talk about this massive political dishonesty that they are engaged in. We'll also look at what's going on with Google, where some very senior officers were caught on tape right after the election bemoaning the fact that Trump beat Hillary. Does this affect the way the algorithms on Google actually deal with conservative issues? I certainly think so. That plus the latest smear against Judge Kavanaugh, courtesy of Senator Feinstein. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I mean, what we're worried about is the wind and the water. The wind is hurricane force winds, very damaging. The water can be deadly. We have the storm surge, as you mentioned, up to 13 feet in some areas that could come across the land that you're not going to be able to outrun, by the way, and is the number one contributor to fatalities during a hurricane. In addition, we have inland flooding here, which means after the storm passes across the coastline, we're going to have flooding for miles inland. So if you're in a low-lying area, even if you're miles from the coast, get out now. Welcome to Buck Sexton Show, folks. It's it's very important that you uh, you heed the warning there of uh, of that gentleman about what to do when it comes to uh, avoiding this storm. Okay, it's very important that you do everything in your power to avoid getting caught up in what is going to be a nasty one. I I know that there's some uh, some reporting out there about how it's going to be not as bad as initially thought and that you know there's going to be some uh, some ability i think for folks to you know probably come back to their home sooner but just you, you gotta just assume the worst for right now now I, I know there's a lot of a lot of news out there on this and everyone's focused on it you know I, i'm not a weatherman and I, I certainly don't play one on radio either i'm not a guy who's here to tell you about the weather really but i am amazed at how political the weather has become in the last 48 hours or so i i do find it somewhat astonishing that here we are in a circumstance where uh the democrats the media are pushing this storyline of of no matter what trump does and that's what you need to understand no matter what trump does to help in terms of the federal government response which is not the only response here uh they will be you know, it'll be a problem. It'll be they didn't do enough. They were, you know, it's unacceptable. Trump doesn't care enough. That's what they're setting up here. Before we find out anything about this, before we find out what the full damage is, it is impossible. It is impossible for them to accept that Trump is doing everything possible. And that's why they're going so much into this narrative over Puerto Rico. That's why you're also hearing there's such a focus now on a storm that happened about a year ago. Um, and, you know, you have this this storyline about 3000 people dying in Puerto Rico. And, you know, look, Puerto Rico, it was a terrible thing. What happened with Hurricane Maria? There's no question about it. But it also was a natural disaster. It was not a man-made disaster. 
And there's a lot of really dishonest reporting going on about just what happened and, and how it happened when it comes to uh, the aftermath of, of that whole of, of that storm system that came through and just ripped up that island. You know, now what you're hearing is a steady stream of people like Jeffrey Tubin over at CNN saying stuff like the following play clip one. Isn't the story that these people who died, apparently thousands of them in Puerto Rico, 3,000, as you point out, they're not white people. Hmm? And they don't count to Donald Trump as much as the deaths of white people. I mean, I, you hate to say that about someone, but look at his record. Isn't that indicative of who he is and what he stands for? I don't know. I mean, it's just terrible, folks. The stuff that they're saying, it, it's it's horrible. The the stories that they're pushing here like this, where they're saying that, that it doesn't, it do, he doesn't care about these people in Puerto Rico. No, folks, what they're doing is they're they're changing the numbers. They're changing the way that we calculate these numbers. They're changing the way that uh, that we think of no other. And I know you're not allowed to say this. Washington Post actually published an editorial today. No other natural disaster has had these analyses of the aftermath and consider them deaths from the disaster in the way that we've seen from what happened in Puerto Rico. Usually a natural disaster, you count who was killed by that weather system, not who died of uh, a bacterial infection three months later that maybe they wouldn't have died from if they had had more immediate access to medical care because of the downed electricity and the downed pounds. But this is what they're doing. This is what they are doing. Uh, they're, They're making it sound like Trump is responsible for the deaths of 3,000 people. I mean, and they're saying it. They're, they're straight up going out there and saying that Donald Trump is complicit in this in some way. They are saying that Donald Trump is the problem here. And it's just crazy what they're doing. It really is. It's just completely unfair. It's so disingenuous. It's so dishonest. I mean, here here's... Uh, Luis Gutierrez, for example, slamming the Trump administration on on preparation for a hurricane that everyone's saying, no, they've prepared for. Gutierrez doesn't care. Play five. You want to know what I fear is the calamity because of the lack of coordination of the government with the National Guard and with local government, the lack of responsiveness and preparedness of this government because the president, he wants to find out who is the one that wrote that op-ed piece uh, about the chaos in the White House because he wants the Justice Department. He is so consumed uh, by the calamity that exists and the chaos that exists that he's not really prepared and focused because he spends every weekend golfing instead of preparing. See, this is what they're going to say no matter what. This is going to be the storyline. It does. It, it simply does not matter to them what President Trump does beforehand and what he does during this storm. Now, y- y- you can hear from the president on this himself. He's saying, look, we are on this. We are focused on this. We're doing everything that we can. Play 15. Tremendous people working on the hurricane. Uh, first responders law enforcement and FEMA, and they're all ready, and we're getting tremendous accolades from politicians and the people. We are ready, but this is going to be one of the biggest ones to ever hit our country. One of the biggest ones to ever hit our country, folks. Uh, that is what the president is saying, and he's, he's also making it as clear as he possibly can 
that he's doing everything in his power to to mitigate the damage from this. But but the Democrats are already running. this. I mean, they're politicizing weather now, folks. They politicize storms in a way that is just so dishonest and, and so unfair to this president. So uh, so ridiculous when you actually look at what's what's possible here and what's happening. And and I am you know, I just find the whole thing to be a complete and utter outrage. I really do. You know, we should have a moment here. We say, okay, you know what? We're going to put aside the 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 toxic politics of the moment. We're we're going to put aside uh the the problems of, you know, Russia collusion all this other stuff. We need to focus on this hurricane right now. We need to be united as a nation in giving all the support we can to the Carolinas. No, no, no. They're already running around trying to score cheap political points on this. They are already engaged in just this this complete nonsense, this complete nonsense about how Trump isn't doing enough and he's a racist. He doesn't care about Puerto Rico. You see, they're, they're mixing it all together. This is what I mean by narrative creation, right? Trump is responsible for 3,000 deaths in Puerto Rico. Trump is a racist. That's why he didn't do more in Puerto Rico. And oh, by the way, he's not doing enough in the Carolinas. And anyone who dies in the Carolinas or even as a result of that storm, just like in Puerto Rico, it's Trump's fault. And this is because they're connecting it all back. They saw how effective this was with the Bush administration. They saw how uh, how much mileage they were able to get out of the notion that, you know, uh, we, we, with the Bush administration getting hammered on Hurricane Katrina, they, they think they can do that again with Trump now. And they just see this as as explicitly political they see this as an opportunity to do oppo and to hit him it's disgusting it's a disgrace we'll talk more about this folks but uh, you know i also want to want to get into what's going on with google i want to get into what the latest is uh with, with um the kavanaugh hearings we got a lot to cover the google thing by the way is incredible you're definitely gonna want to hear that we have a lot of show for you coming up 844-900-2825-844-900 buck um also, make sure if you've got thoughts on any of this, send me your uh, your thoughts at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, and maybe we'll even put you in roll call at the end of the show. Team, we'll be right back. Let me ask you about red tape, because after all of this tragedy, people in Puerto Rico, we've now discovered only 75, as of July 30th, only 75 of 2,341 requests for emergency funeral assistance for Puerto Ricans was approved because of red tape, because they needed approvals from state officials when they, for months and months, didn't have, even have electricity or communications. Is there any way to clear up that kind of red tape? I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, when it came to uh, the amount of food, water, and commodities that we put on the island, uh, we put over two million, uh, two billion dollars worth of commodities uh, into Puerto Rico. Um, but, but here again, um, when it comes back to who actually runs the food chains, it's the it's the major grocers. It's there's all kinds of things. And what what we need to do is make sure, like what we did with Hurricane Lane in Hawaii. We're reaching out to grocery stores. We're reaching out to the major retail providers to understand what they have on island versus what we need to backfill. Because, again, this is a partnership. If anybody is depending on FEMA to be the sole responder and the only responder, uh, that's not right. And that's what we're trying to correct. Uh, and, and with Puerto Rico, uh, you know, uh, the amount of money and the effort that's being put into Puerto Rico, it's going to be a wonderful place. And that's, you know, and um, 
We're, we're absolutely working every day to make Puerto Rico uh, resilient and economically viable. You see, it's more complicated, folks, than just, oh, you know, Trump lied, babies died, or Trump is Hitler or any of that stuff. It, disaster relief involves a multi, multi-agency coordinated effort to try and help people in incredibly difficult circumstances. And instead of just... Uh, you know, hyper politicizing everything, it would be useful if maybe Democrats were using the megaphones they have in the media to try to make sure that the word gets around about, you know, well, what can you do? What should you do? And, you know, if they had any solutions, um, then they then I would be willing to hear them out. But what they really just have are exaggerated complaints that are always about how Trump has somehow failed. It's always Trump's fault. He's, he's the bad guy. Um, you know, it, it, like like there was no bad weather, no, nothing, no major hurricanes happened in the eight years of, of Obama's presidency. No, nothing bad ever happened. That was a natural disaster. You know, if there's forest fires in Cali- wildfires in California, it's Trump's fault. Right. If, if there's a hurricane that hits the U.S., it's Trump's fault. This is stuff that only people with a, uh, you know, a, a crazy re- religious belief in place of actual politics and policy when it comes to uh, hurricanes and disaster management only they could think this way uh and and i'm telling you right now there are probably already editorials um uh, there are probably editorials out there that have been written in advance about how terror now it's gonna we'll see if the storm isn't as bad as anticipated if there are some aspects of it that aren't absolutely terrible or the way that we think they may be, you know, then then there there might be a bit of a hold on this from the media. But they are ready to go all in with with blaming the president of the United States on this. And, you know, I mean, Andrea Mitchell in that exchange there with Brock Long, uh, I, I don't have this part of the clip, but she went on to say, you know, well, look at what happened in Katrina and, and look at what happened in Puerto Rico with Maria. You know, it's the federal government's responsibility to have the infrastructure up to date so it can and Brock Long's like, no, it's not. Or at least it's it's certainly not FEMA's responsibility and it's not the federal government's responsibility. A lot of what you're talking about with power and in utilities is privately owned stuff. So, you know, the, the, to, to turn around and act like the federal government can save people from all this. But, you know, this also plays into uh, a liberal mindset in some ways. And the liberal mindset is as follows. The government, if only it was in the hands of Democrats who really care about people, if only the government was run by the left, who are the people that really care, then and only then would you be protected from all these bad things. You know, Then you'd be protected from, uh, from storms, from hurricanes, from climate change, from big, bad, mean capitalists and and from white privilege and all this other stuff it's dishonest it's dishonorable a word that we will return to later on in the show we're going to talk about honor a bit today on the show um and as well as melting snowflakes at at google that's coming up later too Uh, but it it has been astonishing to see how much of the coverage of this storm is somehow tied to trump and you know look trump trump went on a on a bit of a uh of a tirade today. I'm not going to say he didn't. You know, the president of the United States is not happy with being blamed for the the 3,000 deaths. I mean, if you missed it on Twitter, he said uh, the following. 3,000 people did not die 
in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them to the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. There's some truth to what Trump is saying here, folks. And look, he's saying it in a way that only Trump can and would. But they are they're they're creating this new narrative of, well, if you die of, you know, if you if you die of any preventable disease that we assess maybe could have been better treated had you had more immediate access to, you know, hospital facilities. That's now a death attributed to this storm and therefore a a death attributed to Trump. What a leap. Right. But this is why we don't trust the media. This is why there's so much dishonesty in this. Uh, you know, I've these GW researchers used a computer model to come up with this. You know what the range was, by the way? Everyone keeps saying 3000. You know what that is? That's the middle of the range. The real range is something like 700 people to 3000 people. I'm sorry, or uh, 7000 people. So they went with the 3500 number and they're saying 3000. But it's just a guess. They don't really know. They don't really have the full numbers. And keep in mind, you're talking about an island with a few million people on it. You know, 700 more people dying than expected in the same period last year. I mean, how statistically significant really is that? Now, look, I'm not mitigating in any way the 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 uh, reality of the devastation, the island and and the blackouts and the suffering. And there was a tremendous amount of misery and suffering. But the storyline that Trump uh, the the storyline that Trump is the reason 3,000 people died is just a smear. It's a lie. And that is the story as we get ready to see what happens with this hurricane in, Car- in the Carolinas and, and, and elsewhere and look at what the uh, after effects of it are. Man, it's the, the dishonesty from this media. You, you, it's hard to overstate, folks. It really is. While President Trump has been talking up our preparedness, his policies have been tearing down our defenses to climate change which is often blamed for extreme weather. In fact, on the very same day Trump was discussing Florence from the Oval Office, his EPA proposed rolling back restrictions on emissions of methane, which is 25 times worse than carbon dioxide when it comes to climate change. And that's just the latest environmental party policy targeted by the Trump administration. According to a July study from the New York Times, nearly 80 regulations could be on their way out. It's so bad that according to two Harvard scientists, Trump's environmental policies could lead to an additional 80,000 unnecessary deaths every decade. This is the climate change hysteria. That's uh, John Avalon over at CNN. By the way, what does he know about science? The answer is nothing, but they only do that to conservatives, you see. If you're on the left, you can pose as somebody that's knowledgeable about climate change or as long as you take the proper view. If you're on the right, people say, where's your where's your Ph.D.? You know, what do you know about climatology? And you go, well, I just am somebody who reads and knows that you guys are wrong all the time. Uh, but apparently that's not enough to have an opinion on it, I guess. Um, but th- this is this is just more of the same, folks, uh, more of the same on finding ways to blame Trump and finding ways to say that, you know, I keep saying this. I don't know what does that even mean? But I really I really mean that. 
whenever I say it, our defenses against climate change, we don't have defenses against climate change. The things that he's talking about are are infinitesimal in terms of changes in the global emissions. If it really is a global issue, China is not changing anything. India is not changing anything. All the other countries of the world aren't making these changes. So what the heck is he talking about? Our defenses against climate change, more extreme weather. That's not even true. We don't have more extreme weather than we've ever had. I mean, folks, this planet's gone through ice ages. This planet had the extinction of the dinosaurs and we got hit by a, you know, a meteor and all this other stuff. I mean, come on. At what point do we get sick of being force fed this line of crap from people who don't know anything about science or climate change? They just are obsessed with the the cultural trappings of being somebody who's worried about climate change. Oh, that's what the smart people do, right? Oof, man, tearing down defenses to climate change, which is often to blame for extreme weather. That is an idiotic statement. That is not true. It is just not true. And then saying that Trump is, his policies will lead to 80,000 deaths. This is another line of very dangerous stuff. And you see this on the left. You don't see it on the right, which is they, they extrapolate out. Let's say let's say that, you know, you, you have a policy of, um, you know, you have a policy about workplace safety. And you say, you know what, we're not going to mandate this because we're only about a person a year dies from this workplace safety issue that the left is so concerned with. Well, they'll say, well, over the next thousand years, that means a thousand people will die. So you're guilty of killing a thousand people. This is the way that they think they do hashtag math. And, uh, you know, here's the U.N. climate change chief. I mean, it's not just here in America. Play 13. By raising our ambition to address climate change, we're doing more than just changing the weather. We're building a better future. A future that is cleaner, greener, and more prosperous for all. Now, I know it was a little tough to hear that there, and we, we had a problem with the audio for a second, but by raising, this is the UN climate chief saying, by raising our ambitions for climate change, they're doing more than changing the weather. Folks, they cannot change the weather. That is a lie. Do, do we care about truth? I mean, I'm always hearing from the left, they're all about hashtag truth, right? Do, do they care about truth or not? Is this something that matters to them or not? Because that's a statement that's, that is indefensible from the perspective of what is reality and the world we live in. It is simply indefensible. And yet, and yet here we are, right? Here we are having this discussion. Here we are looking at this issue and being told, essentially, that they can say whatever they want, however they want. But if you don't say climate change is real, they're going to yell at you and tell you you're an idiot. You don't know anything. And oh, by the way, it's Trump's fault. This is how crazy the libs are. They are blaming the president for bad weather. You can't make it up, folks. But let's talk about Google coming up here in a second and how they are a a hotbed of leftist lunacy, too. You know, let's face it, most uh, people here are uh, pretty upset and pretty sad for uh, because of the election. Uh that was the first moment I really felt like we were going to lose. And it was this massive, like, kick in the gut that we were going to lose. And it was really painful. It will be very strong and vocal and, uh, you know, not just, you know, from a press standpoint or a PR standpoint, but actually working hard behind the scenes 
uh, to stand up for what's right. I think it's, it's worth being very vigilant and thinking about all these issues. What can we do to lead to maybe a better quality of governance, decision-making, and so forth? Is there anything positive you see from this election result? <laughs> Oof. Uh, boy, that's, that's a really tough one right now. You may be thinking, Buck, what was all that? Who are all those people who are like, I'm just like so upset because like, what am I going to do because like of the election? And you may be thinking, Buck, did you did you sneak a camera into the uh, the faculty lounge at at Oberlin College? Is, is that did, did you gather together some audio of the women's and genders study department, the sociology department, the. Uh, philosophy department probably too, any of the above at Brown University and want to get a sense of what they thought about Trump's election? No, my friends. That was a 2016, right after the election, all-hands meeting at Google. That's right. One of the most valuable and most powerful companies on planet Earth. And that wasn't just some random... Some of those voices were very senior people there, including the CEO and co-founder. They're all gathering together to have a giant company-wide pity party where they're saying things like they're scared and it was a kick in the gut because Trump won the election. And it gets even more interesting from the perspective of are these companies far-left, social justice-obsessed entities? Uh, Yes, they are, as I've been telling you. Here's a Google exec uh, responding to an employee talking about, oh, that's right, white privilege. Play 10. Uh, Speaking to white men, there is an opportunity for you right now to understand your privilege in the society. Take the opportunity to go through the bias-busting training, read about privilege, read about the real history of oppression in our country, and tomorrow night, watch 13th, the movie that is here. If you can't watch it here, watch it on Netflix. Discuss the issues you are passionate about during Thanksgiving dinner, and don't back down and laugh it off when you hear the voice of oppression speak through metaphors, and I promise to do this. You need to, like, check your privilege and speak through through bias busting and look at privilege and the history of oppression. And when you hear the voice of oppression at a dinner, good God. This is the stuff that passes for wisdom among the social justice left at a company that is full, by the way, of multi-multi-millionaires, billionaires at the very top. We're just here to talk about oppression and like we're so upset about oppression. Whoa. Google co-founder Sergey Brin. Here's what he had to say about, by the way, this was all courtesy and hat tip to, uh, courtesy of hat tip to Breitbart.com. They're the ones that got this audio from 2016, right after Trump's election. Play clip 11. I know this is probably not the most joyous uh, TJF we have had. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, most uh, people here are uh, pretty upset and pretty sad for uh, because of the election. As an immigrant and a refugee, um, I'm, I certainly find this election uh, deeply offensive, and I know many of you do too. Um, and, and I think it's a very stressful time. Uh, and it uh, conflicts with many of our values. 
That's right, folks. It's it's a deeply stressful time. It's offensive. Now, you may be saying, Buck, why why do we care? Why should we care about what they're saying at some internal meeting? Like, oh, my gosh, like when someone just give me a hug because like I was drinking my matcha soy latte and I'm like so upset about Trump's like like victory. And I just I want to go to one of our nap rooms because we're Google. Uh, you know, you can we can sit here and, and talk about the snowflakes and the libs and their Prius driving ways. And, and I and I and I do that because it's fun. But there's a much bigger issue here, and it goes to one of one of uh, the the recurring themes that I've brought up to you so many times on the show. And those of you who've been listening to me for over a year now, I've been saying this all along. I've been I've known this because I know people who work at these companies. I have some very dear friends actually who work in pretty senior, not CEO level, but pretty senior roles. At some internet companies, you'd be like, wow, that's one of the that's that's a really big internet company. Yep. And some of them are stealth conservatives. Or at least centrist normal people who don't think that they need to go to bias busting seminars uh, about white privilege. And they've been telling me all along and, I, and I've been talking about this now for for going on a decade that the Silicon Valley is is a. It's not just a hotbed of progressivism. It's progressivism with an evangelist streak, right? They want to spread their worldview across the country and across the world. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, they're going to probably play ball with China when it comes to, you know, not, they don't want to step on China's toes because, you know, they want to make money too, right? So, so they're this very interesting hybrid of socially incredibly left-wing. Right on social policy, all these companies are all about the 37 genders and everything else. They're they're absolutely hard left on those issues. When it comes to capitalism, though, you know, they like their money. They want to have a lot of money. They'll, they'll advocate for higher taxes for you, but they want to find ways to offshore as much as possible, to engage in as much uh, you know favorable uh, tax treatment as they can get and as, as many ways as they can. You know, they're not looking to pay more of their fair share, but they're going to send a lot of donations to folks in the political world who are always going to talk about you paying your fair share. I mean, I mean, if I, you know, one thing that really, uh, I'll, I'll get into a tax rant another time, but it just gets me so angry. It gets me so angry as somebody who's had, you know, some years where I make, you know, more money. This is a very uneven business in media and other years where I make a lot less why am I paying, you know, the whole, the, the whole notion of a progressive tax code seems to me to be, well, if you're making X amount of dollars, that's what you make. Well, what if you make that one year and then the, the next year you're, you're down, you know, half of that? Do, do, they, do they give you back the money? No, I mean, they, they really don't. I mean, I know there's some balancing out you can do. But anyway, Google is a problem for all of us, folks, because Google is a place that has so much sway over the public conversation and they're not honest about it. You want to talk about bias busting? Google needs to do bias busting on itself when it comes to how it views uh, conservatism, when it comes to how it views traditional Christians, when it comes to how it views, I guess, white males. You know, it's such a lazy, you know, the, the intellectual laziness that goes into hating uh, white males by the progressive left, including white males on the progressive left, of course, right? I mean, they, they engage in this too. It, it's just so stupid. And people do this all the time. They're like, oh, there's all this. You know, what does it even mean? What does white privilege even mean? How can we confront this? How can we handle this issue? 
How do is is it uh, something that has to be monetarily balanced in some way? Should we have quotas at different companies? Do we have to have reparations? What what does it mean to confront white privilege and and white male toxic masculinity? What does that even mean? How do we do that other than talking about it a lot? And at what point do people that haven't done anything wrong but just exist and were born a certain way, i.e., white males like me, get to say, "I'm kind of sick of all the lectures," because I think I'm already there. I think I'm sick of the lectures. I think I'm sick of sitting around and seeing people who are not white males in many cases get elevated professionally because of, quote, diversity. And I sit there and say, yay, this is great. And then, by the way, some of those same people turn around and say, you know, white males need to do more to check their privilege. Oh, okay. That that seems like uh, completely unreasonable to me, in fact. Google's politics are hard left. The people that run that place are effectively for open borders when it comes to immigration. They have embraced all of this social justice rhetoric. They embrace intersectionality, whether they call it that or not, which views our society as just a series of interlocking groups with varying degrees of oppression by one against another. And they hate Trump. They, they acted like Trump's election was the destruction of America as we know it. And now we're told, we're told, oh, they're not biased against conservatives, though. They're not changing the algorithms. They're not doing anything. It's folks, come on. One, we have no transparency, no visibility whatsoever into what they're doing and not doing. Two, I don't even think they know how biased they are. So there's might be a, there might be a degree of subconscious bias in their anti-conservative maneuvering. And three... I mean, how stupid do they think we are? That they're not, they have all this power, all this influence. They're not going to use it uh, to help them push these ideas. They're not going to use this to, you know, help them win on the battlefield of ideas. It's, it's just unrealistic. It just is. The social media giants are engaged in a massive weighing, you know, putting their thumb on the scale for the left. They're doing it every day. They're doing it with our social media platforms. They are uh, doing it in ways that are overt and covert. And we need to address this. You know? Go to snippy.com. Set up an account. You know, Go to places where they don't, uh, they don't play these games. Because this isn't going to stop anytime soon. And this is a big ideological debate that we're going to continue to have to have here. But yeah, Google has been exposed for what it is, for what I've known it is all along. And, I, you know, I think this is going to start to affect the, really affect the long-term viability of some of these companies as the hegemon, because if half the country can't trust you, half the country does have the wherewithal and the resources to, you know, find an alternative. You know, what is the Fox News of search engines going to be? What is the talk radio of social media platforms going to be? I think we're going to find out sooner than later. Do you have opinions that you feel like you can't express? I think we all do. Are you looking for a place to stir up some conversations? Let your thoughts and your opinions be heard. I want to introduce you to an alternative social media site, Snippy.com. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without any suppression from administrators. Check in for a quick update about current events or spend hours scrolling through users' posts. Write your 
your thoughts and strike up conversations. Snippy's founders have intentionally created a forum where anyone can feel free to express their thoughts, frustrations, ideas, anything really. It's a place where discussion is valued, a place where your opinion matters, and it's totally free. Go to snippy.com now to express yourself. No shadow banning, no character limit, no suppression of conservative thought ever. Check out the website at snippy.com or download the app. No censorship, no agenda. Join snippy.com to get the discussion rolling. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make, Make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Detention of migrant children has skyrocketed to highest levels ever. That, that's the big blaring headline from the New York Times today. They want to return to this story that they thought it was a very they thought it was a political winner for them to talk about how heartless Republicans are setting up concentration camps for kids. They don't they don't use that term, but a lot of people did at the time. They don't use this term now in this piece, but concentration camps for kids at the border. Uh, my former boss, Mike Hayden, my boss at the CIA, tweeted out a photo of a concert of a Nazi concentration camp and compared that to what the uh, immigrant children at the border were being subjected to, which was just a horrifically irresponsible and stupid thing to do. But Mike did it. I still don't know why. Uh, but you, even though you had hundreds of children who were separated um, from their families and, and many of them have been reunited under court order, there's a lot more detained immigrant children, and it's the highest number ever recorded. Now, this is being shown as as a, a crisis that's, of, they're going to put it at the Trump administration's feet. This is Trump's fault somehow. You have 2,400 children in custody in May of 2017. This month, you have 12,800 children. And there are all these concerns now about the federal shelter system. It's near capacity. Um, and... They're saying it's because of children not being released to live with their family, with, with, with sponsors, by the way, which is not necessarily family, uh, because of HHS. And they're blaming all of this on Trump. They're saying there's a slowdown. There's essentially a bottleneck now of detained children at the border because of the Trump administration and because people are scared to illegals, is what they're saying, are scared to be in contact with federal authorities to pick up the children who are at the border. Now, first off, folks, this number of children, you have thousands, thousands of children. These are unaccompanied minors, which is another way of saying that people are sending their kids, like 12-year-old kids in many cases, alone across what is one of the most uh, lawless and you know crime-riddled parts of the Western Hemisphere, which is our southern border. Now, I know people say, oh, Buck, there are towns, you know, on the American side of the border that are as safe as any of the country. No, I know, but they're coming through Mexico. They are going through cartel-controlled territory, lawless parts of the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border. They're being subjected to sexual assault. They're being trafficked. They're being used to bring drugs into the country. They are enriching the coyotes, assuming their families have paid the coyotes to bring them across, which you've got to think that's that's going on in a lot of these cases. They're enriching the cartels through human smuggling to the tune of hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. 
And Trump is the problem, they said. Well, let me just step back, step back for a minute on this, folks. Uh, because this is what the this is what the mainstream media is not going to tell you, and and that's why I'm here to actually do the research, folks. There's been a huge surge again at the border. Why? Why are there more this month than than months ago? Why is there a spike of over a hundred percent now showing up at the border? Unaccompanied minors, parents with minors, because that's right. They've heard that hey, the Trump administration had to blink on that whole policy of detaining everybody. So now it's probably a good time to try to get across the border again. They've also heard from those who have crossed in recent years the same way, bringing children, using children as essentially a a tool to wedge themselves into the United States, these adults. They've also been told that you get to stay, that over 90% of the people that have come into the country and, and claimed asylum, in many cases, uh, defensive asylum, which means that they tried to cross in, or they crossed into the country illegally. And then when they got caught, they said, oh, now I want to claim asylum, which is not how it's supposed to work. But they know that that over 90 percent of them don't get sent home. They don't uh, they don't get forced to leave the country no matter how they came here, no matter what the merits are of their claim. And oh, by the way, now there's a big surge again at the border. And you had in the first 11 months of the fiscal year 2018, hat tip Daniel Horowitz at uh, Conservative Review for this, 77,000 pounds of drugs, 77,000 pounds, folks, were seized at the border. In 2012, the number seized in that same period was 18,000 pounds. So here's what I want to tell you. If Democrats want to play this game of... If you don't allow children to endlessly stream into this country from from Mexico, from Central America, from whatever foreign country uh, they come from before they get south of our border, you're mean, you're heartless, you're separating families. If they want to have that discussion, I'm also going to insist that we have a discussion about how the cartels are more powerful than ever. They're richer than ever. Human smuggling networks are a huge part of their recent surge in profits. They're also bringing more drugs in the country than ever before. And those drugs are killing 70,000 plus Americans a year. Because people keep talking about, yes, originally there was a lot of prescription drugs in the streets. And that was the, that was the problem with the opioid epidemic. That's what got it started. Folks, now it is illegal fentanyl. Now it's illegal chemical compounds that are essentially the same as or similar to those prescription drugs. But they're being brought in by the cartels. They're being brought in after being manufactured in vast quantities in Mexico or even in China and then brought to Mexico, then brought to the United States. This is a national security problem. We are losing thousands and thousands of people because of our porous border. And the surge in, in migrant children at the border, by the way, takes away from law enforcement's ability to focus on stopping those cartels from bringing this poison into the country. Our border is a mess And it's a mess because Democrats are utterly feckless when it comes to our sovereignty. They don't care about it whatsoever. They just want to tell sob stories about how Republicans are mean racists who don't want to talk about uh, the the kids from south of the border who all come here. They're all valedictorians. Well, what about MS-13? Oh, how dare you? That's not representative. Well, they're not all valedictorians either, and that's beside the point. Our border is our biggest health Public safety and national security challenge in the country. 
And the fact that unaccompanied children are showing up there in greater numbers than they have in months is a very bad sign about where this is trending, which is why Trump needs to take action. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but time for a wall. The wall needs to happen now. Not in not in two years, not in 10 years. The wall needs to happen now. We'll get into this uh, more right after the break. Stay with me. A brand new poll out today as we approach 50 days to the midterm elections to show it is now increasingly likely the Democrats will take control of the House. What are the numbers to back that up? This. The first time we're using likely voters in our CNN polling. A 10-point advantage for the Democrats when voters are asked which party do you want to run the Congress. Which party will you vote for come November? 52 to 42. The Democrats with a 10-point edge among likely voters. Likely voters tend to move Republicans' way. Not in this poll. A 10-point edge for the Democrats here. If this is the case on Election Day, the math tells you Democrats will take back the House. I know that's what everybody's saying, folks, but, you know, there are some things that Trump could do that would uh, throw quite a wrench into the gears of this preemptive Democrat victory party. And I think the best one would be shut down the government, build that wall. I mean, let's let's go to the math, folks. If not now, when? If it doesn't happen now, it's never happening. All right. We are at that point where if we do not see a willingness to go all in on the issue, really the signature issue that made President Trump the president of the United States, then I think there's, uh, you know, <laughs> what are we doing? What are, what are we wasting our time even thinking that we can change these issues, right? The time is now. I know Republicans lack courage on this. I know Republicans in the Congress want to find somebody else to show the backbone that they themselves are lacking. There's, there's definitely a, a jellyfish-like consistency to the spinal columns of many, many, many members of Congress, including Republicans. But it's got to be now. And think about what that would do. I mean, I want to see the Democrats out there trying to justify effectively being the open borders party. I I want Democrats out there saying that they care so much about stopping a wall that they will shut down the government. Remember, Trump was elected. Elections have consequences. And on this issue, and by the way, they can do it in such a way that, hey, you know, okay. We'll, uh, you know, you want an extension of your DACA protections or you want, you know, we'll we'll give something. But they know the wall is permanent. And if the wall starts going up and people see what the changes are at the border, then we will be in an entirely different world in terms of the conversation over immigration. If the wall starts to work, then they can't say, oh, walls don't work. Walls are idiotic. I'm not paying for that stupid wall, all that stuff. That all goes away. So they have to stop the wall from beginning because the early success will lead to the full out, uh, full on construction of the wall. And then they won't ever be able to get rid of it because people say, why do you want to get rid of the wall? It makes our border more secure. And then the Democrats will have to find a way to actually convince more Americans to vote for them instead of importing people from the developing world, the third world, to vote for them, which is what's going on. And you say, oh, Buck, that's not true. Illegals can't vote. Well, guess what? Illegals tend to come to the country with certain cultural expectations, certain cultural approaches, and their children are led to believe that the Republicans are the mean, nasty party, the children who are born here. So when they're able to vote, they've had parents their whole lives who are saying Republicans are the bad guys because they oppose illegals because they themselves were illegal. And, you know, it's not hard to figure out 
how you get to the voting patterns that you currently see with illegal immigrant tied populations, right? It's not, not hard to figure this out. Democrats know this. By the way, if, Dem- if illegals voted Republican, they would have made the wall 100 feet tall and they would have built it 20 years ago. The Democrats would have. You know, oh my gosh, we need a wall right away. You know, if, if we were taking a lot of people who were saying, hey, no government assistance, no, no socialism for me, I, I just want to make it on my own and, and I believe in limited government and constitutionalism. Uh, and, and I don't think that America owes me something because of a history of colonialism or a history of, uh, you know, global white privilege or whatever it is. Uh, the Democrats would be opposed to this thing in, entirely. So, you know, I, I know the Democrats are already they're, they're getting a little bit ahead of themselves here. You know, they feel like they were denied their great celebration when Hillary was supposed to win. And they really want to they really want to make it happen this time. I just have to say that uh, we have it is still possible for Trump to flip the script. And I, I think he should do it because right now, even with even with the economy as good, good as it is, folks, I think if we go into this midterm kind of all right, let's see what happens. Yeah, I think Democrats probably do take the House. And that means that the Trump agenda is dead in the water until 2020. That's what happens. Now, the the tweets will still be there. There'll still be a lot of stuff, but the Trump agenda will be on hold. And man, that 2020 election is going to be bonkers. I want to switch gears for just one second here, because we're going to talk about the opposition to Kavanaugh in a minute and how insane people are in terms of the ways that they're, the way that they are opposing Kavanaugh, the way that they are uh, trying to stop him. And, you know, we've got a really dirty trick that just came out today, which we'll get to. The Democrats, though, in their dealings are dishonorable. The Democrat Party has embraced dishonor. And certainly the Democrat aligned media, which is the mainstream media, the majority of the media, uh, has very little honor as a general rule. Clarence Thomas, who went through all kinds of nastiness, as you know, in his confirmation hearing. I mean, they made some garbage HBO movie about how Anita Hill was really, you know, like a women's rights champion or something. It's just all the rewriting history that goes on is, is madness. But Clarence Thomas recently spoke about the issue of honor. Play clip eight. If we could use the word honorable more often, think about the difference it'll make. Then you'll have a legacy. We will have left the country in better shape morally, uh, structurally, than we found it. But as long as we're looking at our interests or scoring points or looking cute or being on TV or the greenhouse effect or what editorials we're getting, especially the legal system. How do we maintain it? If you can't debate hard issues honestly, with honor, with integrity, how do we keep a civil society? It's such an important point. And the, the lack of honor in our public discourse. I mean, look, Trump, Trump is a street brawler, folks. But we needed to bring in a street a street brawler because really conservatives and, and the Republicans, at least on the national stage and in terms of media coverage, we were like the terrified town with, you know, cowboys r- running around, stealing all of our stuff and, you know, kidnapping our women and everything else. And, you know, Trump is like the Trump is the is the gunslinger, so to speak, that we hired to come in and clean up the town. We need honor, though, in our society. We really do. I mean, and, and I think the first part of it is to call out the dishonorable, uh, call out places like CNN that are are engaged in a mass and sustained dishonesty on a daily basis. Uh, 
uh, call out the way Democrats, I mean, the way that they've acted on this Kavanaugh hearing, we're going to get to the really the height of their dishonor in just a moment. The way they've acted on this Kavanaugh hearing, though, is an utter disgrace. Uh, they should be ashamed. I know they're not because the Democrats are really incapable of shame. It's just about power, it's just about achieving power. But they should be ashamed of themselves. By the way, Clarence Thomas uh, even had a little moment where he decided to talk about our modern Spartacus. Uh, clip seven, please. How many people can you use in leadership positions today? The word that I used about Greg, honorable. Honorable, not the honorable. Honorable. If we could use that word about more people who are in public life, people who actually ask the questions at confirmation hearings instead of Spartacus, we use. (laughs) (laughs) 300, but at any rate. Honorable. You know, it's a term that all of us should should strive for others to think of when they think of us. Uh, if there's if there is a, a a principle that I would always like to be at the center of this show and of, of my interactions with you and, and all of our all the work, all the thought that we put into this, this community of people across the country. There are hundreds of thousands of you. Um I would like honor to be at the very center of it. And I think that it should be at the center of American public life. Again, we're in a battle right now and you can be honorable in battle, but it's, it's certainly more challenging. Uh, but honor should be at the center of our public life and honor should be at the center. More importantly, of what you and I are doing every day. And this is a concept that we should spend a lot more time, not we, although I guess that too, but just as, as a society, we should return to this and not just be so focused on the immediate, on self-gratification, on winning in the moment, on owning, quote, the other side. Uh, it would be much better to, to finish each day with, were we honorable today? And know that that's the single most important thing. But the Democrats are not. <laughs> so uh, we will address that in just a moment. The, the most disgusting thing I have, uh, and there's been a lot of stuff, folks. And I had to interview the head of the Women's March, and she was a loon. I mean, but the most disgusting thing yet in some ways is what's happened today. And it involves a highly respected senator who is just trying to destroy Judge Kavanaugh's reputation. That's coming up. If you care at all about women's choice, vote no on Kavanaugh. Don't be a dumb if you vote for him, you are standing there, feckless, feckless, feckless woman, standing there letting, letting Trump and his appointees steal health care from millions of Americans, steal the right to choose what women do with their bodies. And you stood by there. Oh, I didn't know. I'm so naive. F*** you. F*** you. Oh, there's more, folks. But we'll stop there. Those were... Some of the released recorded uh, phone calls that were left for Senator Susan Collins of Maine over the Brett Kavanaugh, the looming Brett Kavanaugh uh, nomination. And, the, you know, the, the left, they are unable to mount a serious, honest opposition to Kavanaugh, but they are so frenzied and so desperate 
in their anti-Kavanaugh hatred that they're trying everything and anything. I mentioned you yesterday this uh, crowdfunding campaign to raise a million dollars and it'll go to Susan Collins's opponent, whoever that may be, in the uh, Senate race in Maine in 2020. Collins isn't up right now, but she'll be up in 2020. Uh, the, the, which that's that that's fine. I mean, if people want to throw their money away into that, that's fine. As I've said, they can talk to Jeb Bush about how money does or does not buy you political victory. Uh, but they are or they're in this frenzy over the issue. And that's how you've also had so much lying, uh, most notably from uh, Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton, about what Kavanaugh said. Uh, and th- that was it was really intentional, folks. I mean, the, the lies were intentional about uh, about Kavanaugh, the lies that they were telling about his uh, saying that birth control and abortion are, are essentially the same. They knew they were lying and it didn't matter to them because it was, they thought, damaging to Kavanaugh. And, and it actually would be damaging if it were true, because a majority of Americans do not think that contraception as a general issue is, is abortion, right? That's, that is not actually something that conservatives believe. Uh, but here we are uh, with abusive phone calls, all these threats. And then in a kind of 11th hour maneuver to show us just how desperate all this stuff really is, Feinstein, Senator Feinstein, who when she's not, you know, rolling around with a Chinese spy in her car for 20 years, is a, a lefty progressive who wants to stay in good stead with the uh, the Democrat Party and, and all of its progressive, foundational, uh, important base entities, number one of which is Planned Planned Parenthood is basically the the only constituency in the Democratic Party that you are never allowed to cross. You are never allowed to deviate. You cannot be a Democrat and be pro-life anymore. Isn't that interesting? You cannot be. People say, oh, no, Buck, there are some pro-life Democrats. False. There are Democrats who say they are pro-life, and then they vote, and in all of their public and political activities, vote with the abortion extremists of the modern Democratic Party. The extremists on the issue of abortion. They are not moderates. They're not reasonable. They are insane. And they're, that what, they, what they're willing to defend is straight up barbarism. All right. Third term abortion. Is, never mind that abortion is all the taking of life and therefore it is killing and it is murder. But third term abortion is, is absolutely barbarous and is a blight on our civilization that this is going on right now. And the Democrats, they, they will defend it. I mean, if you are going to take the NARAL pro-choice America view, you have to defend that. You know, abortion at eight months, no problem. That's what they say. But Feinstein, because, you know, remember this, that's what's really at stake here, folks. Abortion is really what they're focused on. Yeah, they talk about the affordable health care and everything else. But the one that has them acting like a bunch of crazy people is Roe versus Wade and abortion. And Feinstein just today released this statement saying, quote, I have received information from an individual concerning the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. That individual strongly requested confidentiality, declined to come forward or press the matter further, and I have honored that decision. I have, however, referred the matter to federal investigative authorities. Now, let me just say this. If, if in fact... And I would I would bet a large amount of my very 
meager savings on this. But if, in fact, that there, there is nothing to this, what Feinstein has done here is one of the most unethical, disgusting, disgraceful character assassination maneuvers I've ever seen involving a major political figure and a national level issue. Uh, this is worse. This is worse than when Harry Reid on the floor of the Senate, where he couldn't be challenged or sued for what he says, uh, said that Mitt Romney hasn't paid his taxes in 10 years, Just in, which was an out and out lie. An out and out lie. Um, but And which Harry Reid admitted later was a lie and said, yeah, but did he win? It was, it was worth it. Democrats lie big and recklessly and destructively, okay? Trump, yeah, sometimes he lies about his golf game. We don't care. Feinstein here has done worse than what Harry Reid did, though, because what she has done... Uh, allows people to just allows their imaginations to run wild. Oh, is this some kind of terrible sexual misconduct? That's the first thing I think that comes to mind. Um, th- th- this I- I'm seeing already speculation that it has to do with some kind of uh, something that happened in the 80s. Uh, and, and I mean, unless Kavanaugh murdered somebody, which I don't think anybody thinks that he did, I, I can't think of something. Uh, realistically, that would involve Kavanaugh in the 80s that, you know, I mean, is the statute of limitations something that, you know, I mean, no, I mean, that, we're not, by the way, it's not, I don't even think it's criminal. I think it's just some kind of an allegation. I just think that they're just, and, and this is what they do. They hide like little cowards. It, oh, Mike says, Mike some yeah, it's when he was in high school, folks. Okay, what could he have done in high school that somebody would have knowledge of that would be so bad that Senator Feinstein has to bring it up. I'm not saying it's impossible, but and, you know, now you get into this. Let's say it is an allegation of some kind of uh, of some kind of sexual impropriety. How is he supposed to defend himself? How is he supposed to come forward and say, and maybe it's not that I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe it's that he cheated on his biology exam. I have no idea. But that's the point. They make it seem so nefarious and they allow all of the uh, the, the, what what Feinstein is doing here is throwing a big bucket of gasoline on the raging fire of the lunacy of the left when it comes to Kavanaugh. And she knows it, folks, and she does not care here. The letter, quote, took a a circuitous route to Feinstein, the top-ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. It reportedly describes an incident that was related to someone affiliated with Stanford University who authored the letter and sent it to a Democrat who represents the area. Different sources provide different accounts of the contents of the letter, but the one consistent theme was that it involves an incident with Kavanaugh when he was in high school. I mean, what the heck is this? Folks, so I mean, that's it is they're they're alleging some kind of deeply nefarious sexual impropriety without actually alleging it. If they can do this to Kavanaugh, they can do this to anybody. This is why, folks, I don't really care what Trump tweets, what Trump says. The Democrats are soulless and evil when it suits them. They do not care who they destroy. They do not care what happens to a good man like Kavanaugh. This is and this is the elite's. 
This is Feinstein. This is somebody who's supposed to be, you know, an adult in the room and supposed to know better. Yeah, producer Mike is telling me this is just like, it's like Clarence Thomas, Clarence Thomas Redux. You know, this is, but it, it is, it is how they, it is how they play the game. It's how they do things. And we, we should not stand for it. We absolutely should not allow this uh, to go without, you know, a, a thorough repudiation. I mean, it really makes me angry because, you know, Feinstein, these people, they, they're so smug and they're so condescending toward Trump and all of his supporters like you and me. And then they do crap like this. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I did this to somebody, what Feinstein and all these people in the media running this story have done. You know, if it turns out that this is some bombshell, well, yeah, well, then I was wrong and I retracted. Who wants to bet that it's not? We're going to hit their oil. We're going to hit their um, foreign banks. And so they're really going to start to feel it. Their economy is spiraling out of control. The Europeans are trying to salvage what they can. Nothing is going to fix Iran until Iran fixes itself. Every secretary of state, former secretary of state, continues to meet with foreign leaders, goes to security, security conferences, goes around the world. We all do that. And we have conversations with people about the state of affairs in the world in order to understand them. I think everybody in the world is sitting around talking about waiting out uh, President Trump. So there he had uh, two different heavy hitters in their respective administrations uh, on the issue of Iran. Nikki Haley, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and former Secretary of State and uh, overall blowhard John Kerry. And, you know, let's start with the Nikki Haley component. That's what's going on right now. Nikki Haley's saying, look, we're we're punishing the Iranians. The Iranians can make this stop whenever they want by stopping the nonsense. You know, the, the, the moment that the Iranians are all of us, uh, the moment that they're willing to stop being such bad actors in the world stage and, and that they're willing to to play ball and stop supporting all these terrorist regimes throughout the Middle East, uh, creating instability in countries where we have strategic interests, where we have allies threatening to destroy Israel, threatening to, you know, kick the Israelis into the sea and and, uh, you know, turn America into a sea of fire and all this other crazy crap. Then we have something to discuss, but we're not just going to allow all that to continue on and give them access to the international economy, and international banking, just because we're desperate for some kind of foreign policy legacy item, a.k.a. what the Obama administration did. Right. So, so you're hearing that Nikki Haley, she's like, we are turning up the heat on Iran and it's not going to stop. And we have the stronger hand here. Then you hear from John Kerry, the former Secretary of State. Now, he got himself into some trouble because he, in classic, arrogant, self-important John Kerry mode, thought that he should go and start meeting with not just Iranians, folks. Okay, And he's not showing up at conferences and just giving his thoughts on things. Everybody has First Amendment rights. Former government officials have just the same First Amendment rights as everyone else. But he sits down with the Iranian foreign minister, somebody that he was negotiating against, whether he realizes that or not. And I don't think he does. I think he was negotiating with as in he thought that there were you could maybe call it even collusion. He thought that the process of trying to get the Iranians to come to the table on a deal was working for the same general purpose, the same side. The Trump administration and Nikki Haley and others think that the process of bringing Iran to the negotiating table is bend them to our will because they are out of line. 
It's a very different approach. But John Kerry has been holding these meetings with foreign leaders. And when people look at this, they, they very understandably become quite uncomfortable because John Kerry knows a whole lot more than your uh, you know average folks do about this nuclear negotiation process, including the weak points from either you know the the perspective of the deal or or you know American uh, American political weak points on this or where he and and what you have is something that sounds very close in my mind very close to a situation where you have the former Secretary of State, John Kerry, under the Obama administration, who sounds like he is advising a, not just a foreign uh, Secretary of State, but really a, a foreign government in how to defeat in negotiations the current administration. That's a big problem, folks. I mean, this is now I, I know he would. He, of course, John Kerry would he would say that's not true and no way. But just for one, the, the secretary of state, John Kerry, a former secretary of state, of course, pardon me, sitting down to say, hey, uh, all you have to do is wait out with the rest of the world, wait out the Trump administration, and then you'll get what you want. This starts to feel pretty close to giving aid and comfort to the enemy, my friends. I mean, it's look, I'm not in the room and I'm I'm trying to analyze based on what he, he's admitted. He has talked to the Iranian foreign minister. He's admitted that he talks to them about the nuclear the nuclear deal. And there's just no way that a normal person doesn't see that as undermining the Trump White House. There's no way that a normal person sees this and doesn't think to himself or herself, oh, my gosh, John Kerry is running a kind of rogue diplomacy where he is really taking the side of, at least in this dispute, he's taking the side of the Iranians over the Trump administration. Now, here's here's the way you could really get to the heart of this. Is John Kerry more favorably disposed toward Javad Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, or Donald Trump himself? If he were to say, you know, if, if, if you were to ask John Kerry, who do you think is more trustworthy, a negotiating partner, the Iranian foreign minister or Donald Trump? I would be very curious to hear what his answer would be. I would be very curious to know uh, how John Kerry uh, weighs the, quote, threat of Trump versus the threat of a nuclear Iran. You know, that that mentality that was expressed by the uh, imbecilic Joe Scarborough article earlier in the week in the Washington Post, where he said that Trump is essentially Trump getting elected is like is, is worse than 9-11 for America. Uh, that sentiment is widespread among the elites. And John Kerry is as elite as it gets. I mean, he's a guy who he married a very wealthy woman. I think he married two very wealthy women in a row, but married a very wealthy woman. He is quite elite. He is Mr. Martha's Vineyard, Mr you know, $10 million townhouse in Boston on Beacon Hill. And I'm telling you that he has absolutely internalized a lot of the most hysterical anti-Trump sentiment. And when that kind of a guy sits down across from Iran, which is an enemy state, an enemy regime, I can't trust that he would not feel the need to try to help the Iranians a little bit to balance out what he views as a threat of the Trump administration. And that's crazy. It's subversive, and it's 
wildly irresponsible. You know, we just had this news about Google and how they feel about people who vote for Trump, how they feel about Trump himself. He's a disaster. He's terrible. They hate him. You think that when people run a company and they almost uniformly have that kind of political bias toward the left, it doesn't affect the actual workings of the company, especially a social media platform where you just assume that they don't really care and they're just going to do right by you. But guess what? What if they're biased against conservatives? Folks, Snippy.com is the place you should go. Snippy.com is a new social media site where there is no agenda, no bias, no conversational health nonsense. It's a place where you can share your thoughts and ideas and where conservatism will never be suppressed. I've got a Snippy.com account. I'm already active there. Go check it out for yourself. Snippy.com, totally free to join. You can post your thoughts, post video, post photos. Again, Snippy.com, or you can download the Snippy.com app and start the conversation. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Well, obviously, today's new text messages would suggest that the media leak strategy was exactly what we uh, surmised in the letter that we sent to Rod Rosenstein just a couple of days ago. I think, but the bigger context of this is that this is not the end of it. I, I can say the Department of Justice has been working with Jim and I to get us additional documents. And, and I can tell you, there are dozens of other documents that would support the fact that Peter Strzok and Lisa Page had ongoing relationships with multiple reporters and that they were feeding them information uh, to, to spin a narrative against this president. Uh, no, it, it's it, it's not even it's not legal. It's against protocol. But the other thing is, is they are denying it. And we have the proof that would suggest otherwise. Here's what's so frustrating about the dossier was a big lie. So what they did is they said, this is a big lie. The more people we can get talking about the dossier, the more likely it is they'll believe the lie. So that's why they had this leak strategy to support a document that was the basis for everything. That's the big problem here. They took that document, the dossier, untrue document. They took it to the secret court and didn't tell the court important facts to get a warrant. Didn't tell them who paid for it. Didn't tell him the guy who wrote it, Christopher Steele, had a extreme bias against the president, said he was desperate to stop Trump, and didn't tell the court about Orr's involvement, both Bruce and Nellie Orr's involvement in production of the document. This whole thing stinks, folks. It just stinks, okay? We, we are way past the point of giving any uh, benefit of the doubt to the DOJ and the FBI when it comes to anything related to Trump and Russia and collusion, all this other stuff. This is just out of control. You have new text messages that have been released. This thanks to Mark Meadows uh, over on the House. But uh, this text messages say that people were leaking like mad in the lead up to the Trump-Russia probe. Before I get into the details here, let me give you the the overview of what we all know is going on here. They were trying to shape the the narrative in the media to justify what they had done after the fact. I I think that's very obvious, okay? Uh, They were trying to create the perception of the general public that there was a need to do this stuff because they knew that if and when the 
truth of the investigation, including the FISA requests against Carter Page and, and all the other aspects of the Russia collusion hoax, and it is a hoax, if that ever came to light, it would look terrible. It would be so obviously and blatantly and hopelessly politicized that there would be, frankly, uh, no conceivable way for them to defend this in the court of public opinion. So they had to both tell stories in the press about this to create, if not an alibi, at least a a, a defense for themselves and to really make it clear to the Democrats in in Congress and in the media, hey, you know, you you better you better uh, join with us here on this anti-Trump stuff or else we're all going to be in a whole lot of trouble because we were trying to help Hillary, you know, take take our side here, you know, help out the rest of of team Hillary. Uh, And that's I don't see how you can come away with a different conclusion than that. I mean, here's what the 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 text message exchange on December 15th, 2016 says. All right. Quote, oh, this is from Page, uh, Lisa Page, not Carter Page, Lisa Page to Peter Strzok. Oh, remind me to tell you tomorrow about the Times doing a story about the RNC hacks. She texted Strzok. Strzok replied, and more than they already did. I told you, Quinn told me, they pulling out all the stops on some story. A source told Fox News Quinn could be referring to Richard Quinn, who served as the chief of the media and investigative publicity section in the Office of Public Affairs. Quinn could not be reached for comment. Strzok again replied, think our sisters have begun leaking like mad, scorned and worried and political, they're kicking into overdrive. In one passage, Strzok apparently misreads a reference to RNC and then blames his old man eyes. And it's unclear whom Strzok was referring to when he uses the term sisters. Okay, folks, let's let's break this down. Sisters is most likely a reference to the intel agencies, which I'm sure they would not like to be thought of as the sisters of the FBI, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but probably the the intel agencies and, and most more specifically, the CIA would be my guess. But I don't know. I'm not Peter Strzok. I've, I've never heard. Let me tell you this much. Nobody, the FBI. Yeah, that's right. Nobody, the FBI is going to refer to the CIA as as its its sister agency to anybody who works at the CIA. That much I can tell you. Uh, but maybe the FBI, that's how they do it. I don't know. Maybe that's uh, that's clear to them. That's the most likely. And and that appears in an analysis here uh, on this Fox News piece online. And and I think that's the most likely scenario. But what this makes absolutely clear is that the FBI folks involved here were very aware that there was a public relations component. And I would even argue to you, it starts to get very close to being propaganda, folks. Right. This is the government trying to justify the government's actions through confidential stories or or rather giving, you know, uh, sourcing to the media uh, through confidential sources in order to propagate a certain version of events so that the public thinks something that the government wants them to think. They're really not supposed to do that. That's that's not how this is supposed to work. And, And I think there, you, so you have that component of it. And then just that there are so many people who are leaking, uh, who are leaking. You have really a, a, a dual track here. You have rogue actors in the FBI and DOJ 
who were leaking classified, things like the Flynn phone call to Ambassador Kiziliak. So that's one part of this. And then you also have the official, I mean, it's not really a leak, but the, the official propaganda strategy, you could say, from the Office of Public Affairs of the Department of Justice that is going to, remember this, folks, it's not always about politics. Sometimes it's about bureaucrats. And you have people who aren't necessarily all that pro-Hillary or aren't even that anti-Trump, but who work at a place like the Department of Justice. And when they think that the public might turn on their organization, they have absolutely no problem. I can assure you of this. They have no problem doing what needs to be done to protect their agency. And I think that's probably what you saw here. I mean, the Office of Public Affairs at... Uh, the Department of Justice, or rather in the in the FBI, I mean, they probably have, but they there's I'm sure there's an OPA in both, was telling the press certain things to massage the story about this Russia collusion madness. And then you also had people that were passing classified information to the media for really specific hits, like going after General Flynn. Uh, so, but what you see is, I mean, this is the the weaponization of government in a in a political dispute. That's what's happening. I mean, that is now on the record, clear as day. No serious person is going to be able to convince me uh, that that's not true because it is true. I want to know when we're going to find out who is doing a lot of that rogue actor classified leaking. I would note. Keep in mind, folks. Do you know who does the investigating of that? Do you know who is charged with finding out who would have leaked classified to hurt Trump? That's right, the Department of Justice and the FBI. So if, in fact, what we're dealing with here, and it seems abundantly clear that we are, is a cabal at FBI and DOJ at the top level, mind you, including people who have been fired like Strzok, people who have been fired like McCabe, McCabe, who's facing criminal charges, if they were the ones and some of their close colleagues who have stayed behind in those agencies are the ones that are that are tasked with ferreting out leakers of classified information, I have a feeling we're not going to find too many folks who were doing the anti-Trump hashtag resistance classified leaks. Who will watch the watchers? It's a recurrent question whenever we talk about government, especially federal law enforcement and any time that there's the possibility of the surveillance apparatus of the intelligence community being used for political purposes. That's what happened here. And I just I just have to note that, you know, they were very good at tracking down leakers during the Obama years, and there were no damaging leaks from inside the government about anything Obama did. A lot of people were, were on notice. You know, you say anything, we're going to throw you in prison or ruin your life. But when it comes to Trump, a lot of damaging classified leaks in the press and people aren't being, pro no one's been prosecuted for it. Not a single person. Well, maybe it's because the leakers are the ones doing the investigation. How about that? People, we jumped very quickly today, but I do think that we like to forgive. You went on the Howard Stern show yesterday to apologize, and you ended up making it worse yes. because you said you'd have to have Down syndrome not to feel sorry that for the wrong. victims. Yes. <laughs> 
Do you regret you just saying keep on that? getting into trouble, Norm Macdonald? <laughs> it's always bad when you have to apologize for the apology. An apology. The, um, Do you lose it when you're on Howard? Is that what happens, Joe? Well, there a is a bit. thing on, on Howard where there's a recklessness in the studio. And, uh, you know, there used to be a word we would all say uh, uh, to mean stupid that we don't say anymore. No. Right? Yeah. You, you know we the word I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. And stupidly, I was about to say that word. And, you put this and I stopped and said, what's the right word to say? And then I said, um, I said uh, a different yeah, word that yeah. was equally. Yeah. Did you realize that moment that that probably I realized at that moment that I'd done something unforgivable. Yeah. This is kind of a follow up team to yesterday when I talked to you about Norm Macdonald, comedian, just got a show on Netflix. This guy can't get out of his own way. You know, I'm obviously somebody who's going to give more than the just the, the benefit of the doubt on, you know, saying something that. The left jumps on, takes out of context and all that stuff. I'm the first one to say the comedian should be given some latitude to make jokes and be funny. But he talked about uh, Roseanne and Louis C.K. and he got in trouble. And then he was trying to apologize for it and went on the Howard Stern show, which I would just notice probably not the best venue for an apology on this stuff. And then he went on to say you'd have to have Down syndrome to not understand what he was saying and i didn't know that part of it when i went on the air yesterday to talk to you about this i saw that afterwards i just thought to myself what is wrong with norm mcdonald now he he obviously is not defending that and and he didn't he explained to you what his thought process was he was going to use the r word which you know i would i would note i i try to be fair-minded folks about all the things that i that i discuss here on the show and I know that for a lot of people, there's kind of a just a constant own the libs, always own the libs, fight, fight, fight mentality. I try to bring some nuance to this, too. So while I'll tell you that the war on words that the left is, is waging all the time is very important and that they play dirty and that they cheat and there's all kinds of stuff we should be aware of there. I, I will say that when I was growing up, I remember that people would say uh, would say the word. Uh, retard as though it, it was completely normal and fine to say about anybody that they thought was acting in, in a way that was stupid or anything else. And anyone who spent any time around somebody with Down syndrome or somebody with learning disabilities understandably just gets very uh, angry about that. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it is wrong and it's not something that it's not something that people should say. And we have but see, there's a reason for why we shouldn't say it, right? And it's understandable. It's a, you should not use that term for somebody as a term of, of any kind of disparagement and, and shouldn't use that term now in general. Uh, that all said, I don't know how Norm MacDonald goes from about to say that to why not just say jackass? Why go from the R word to saying Down syndrome, which is even more specific to people with a, a condition who are, you know, are their loved ones, their family members, their who who have had to you know overcome uh, a, a quite a, a difficult burden. I mean, having Down syndrome obviously makes life in many ways more challenging. Although people also point out that people with Down syndrome are, generally are very happy and very loving. Uh, but you know, Norm McDonald, man, what is he doing? I mean, he's been in the game a long time. He he should know better than this. I, I'm not here to sort of do the pylon. You could tell he's sitting in that view interview. He's not smiling. He's not laughing. He he knows that it's kind of a 
a second strike here, and and I guess he'll he'll get a he'll get a third one on this, and he, he's because the first look I was defending what he not defending what he said, but defending his right to say the original stuff about how look the Me Too movement, you know, shouldn't get uh, shouldn't become a, a, essentially a career death sentence for everybody. That's what he was trying to say or trying to get at, I think. Um, but you know, I, man, I I just felt that I had to follow up after yesterday talking about Norm Macdonald, and I do find it really troubling that comedy is is just under constant assault in this country. I mean, I, I do find it troubling that we can't allow comedians the the latitude that I really think they should have to do the, you know, the pushing of boundaries that we would expect from them, the pushing of boundaries that's really necessary for them to be effective in, in what they do. I mean, a comedian that's trying to be safe, it's general. Well, you have a lot of that these days, folks. You know, a comedian that's trying to be safe is somebody like Kathy Griffin, who really now only makes fun of Trump and Republicans and, you know, people who live in rural America and Christians. You know, that, that those that's what you get with comedians who are trying to be safe. They attack the targets that political political uh, political correctness say they can. Uh, and I just find I find the whole thing uh, very dispiriting because I wish we could have comedy back. Anyway, I just had to follow up with the Norm Macdonald thing. I was really surprised at his ineptitude in handling this and, and dealing with it. And then to, to go on, on The View to discuss it, at least the, the ladies of The View were willing to hear him out. I was I was surprised at that, too. They were uh, they seemed willing to to engage him on this stuff. But, you know, man, there are limits, folks, to what we can say. OK, well, anybody could have said that or, you know, that's a mistake that any of us might have made under the circumstances. I don't think if I'm trying to backpedal a little bit from a discussion Trying to have a nuanced discussion about Me Too, I don't think all of a sudden I make a disparaging remark about people with Down syndrome. I, that, that is not something that I could see happening to just anybody. So, and look, Norm MacDonald, maybe he's just learned his lesson. I, I wonder if his show is going to be any fun, uh, funny at all. As I've told you, I'm not a Norm MacDonald person. I've never thought he was funny. I've always thought it was very, he was trying very hard uh, to be funny. But other people I know are, are devotees of his comedic style. And if you ask me these days, you know, Buck, who do you think is a really funny comedian? There are some funny shows out there. I mean, I think Silicon Valley on HBO is actually, it's a Mike Judge show who's the Office Space creator. He created the movie Office Space. Uh, I, I think Silicon Valley would be very high on my list. But I, I can't tell you right now who I can think of that does stand-up comedy that is truly great. And I think it's because the boundaries for stand-up comedians have been so set by a politically correct agenda that there, there's really not the room for the kind of brilliance that we'd seen with other comedians. I mean, you could never have the, and there'll never be an equivalent anyway, but you could never have an Eddie Murphy in his prime doing what he used to do today and saying the kind of things. You could even have Robin Williams. I've said this to people, you go back and look at some of the retrospectives that were done on Robin Williams' life after he tragically took his own life. People were saying that Robin Williams' comedy was too offensive. This is just a few years ago. Anyway, but do watch uh, Silicon Valley. I, I think it's very good. It's obviously a little irreverent and there's a, you know, a fair amount of cursing and stuff like that. But it's it's a it's a good show, folks. I would recommend that one to you. If you're looking for one, get Silicon Valley on HBO. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Should schools force kids to face their fears? 
Well, if they have an irrational fear of, say, spiders, if they're arachnophobes, or if they have a a fear of going outside, agoraphobia, there are some clinical fears that maybe are a little too much. I don't think we should take somebody who's terrified of snakes and necessarily put them through immersion therapy and cover them with snakes, right? That, that would be cruel. But should we make some exceptions for people who are afraid of public speaking? This issue is actually getting a lot of attention right now because of a, a tweet went viral from a 15-year-old high school student who declared, quote, stop forcing students to present in front of the class and give them a choice not to. This got 130,000 retweets and nearly a half a million likes. And this is following a similar sentiment in January that also got a lot of attention on Twitter. Uh, and then you have these, this is from The Atlantic, by the way, this, that, that's who's covering this, that teens are protesting in-class presentations. And you have some teenagers quoted in this. Again, now we're being told these days that teenagers have a lot of wisdom. Quote, nobody should be forced to do something that makes them uncomfortable, says Ula, a 14-year-old in eighth grade who, like all students quoted, asked to be referred to only by her first name. Even though speaking in front of the class is supposed to build your confidence and it's part of your schoolwork, I think if a student is really unsettled and anxious because of it, you should probably make it something less stressful. School isn't something a student should fear. Well, they really have this backwards. Students shouldn't fear speaking in school. It's not that school is something that you should not fear. Uh, This is not a a sufficient approach to it. It's not enough to just say, well, I don't like it and I'm scared. You shouldn't go through life terrified of speaking in front of people. And in fact, the the data shows that one of the most sought after skills by employers is the ability to communicate uh, to people effectively and, and also to communicate to the public effectively. You know, th- of all the classes that I took in high school, I've got to tell you, one of the best ones And this may be obvious because I now make my living as a radio host, but I took a speech class my freshman year of high school. And it was something that a lot of people complained about at the time. They said, oh, you know, what a waste. And because all it was was you had to get up and you had to write a speech or you could give it extemporaneously. Uh, It was usually a set time. It was, you know, three minutes or five minutes or whatever it was. And you would get up and give a speech in front of all of your classmates and then we would talk about effective speaking, uh, you know, effective speaking styles and traits and things that you could do up there and, you know, what to do with your hands. And this was not a waste at all. I think every school should absolutely have this as part of the curriculum. I think that getting up and speaking is something that people should, in fact, be forced to do uh, because it is not healthy to go through life afraid of communicating. I'm not saying you have to get up there and give a speech on subject matter you don't know anything about. And, you know, obviously there are some limitations on this. But in general, we should not be catering to the fear of public speaking as uh, well. We shouldn't be catering to those who have have a fear of public speaking and think that they can get around this problem by avoiding the problem. That's not sufficient. Uh, And I, I think that everybody should get used to the idea that they're going to have to communicate publicly. Now, because of social media, everyone's communicating with the world all the time. But being able to speak effectively is an asset that we should be training as many people as possible to have. 
It's so worthwhile. I mean, I, I've been in so many different office environments already in my life. And oftentimes what you find about the people that are running things and the people that are the most highly regarded is they're not necessarily the best decision makers. They don't necessarily have the best leadership style. They're the people that communicate most effectively with their peers and with those around them. So I think it's absolutely essential. I don't like this at all. And, and this just goes into this pile of, oh, we need to give kids what they want. Kids know better. No, and a lot of this stuff, they don't. They should get up and speak. There should be more of this. I should have had much more speech training in college, in high school than I did. It should have gone on into college as well. Although I was part of the debate team, so I was really a speech super nerd. Uh, but there you have it. That's my feeling on that. So tell all these high school kids or grammar school kids who are scared to speak publicly to get off my lawn and start giving a speech. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. All right, my friends, let's get to it. Philip writes that Darby was dead on. Obama definitely whistles his S's. It drives me crazy, too. She drives me crazy. Ooh, ooh. It's a great song. It's a Mike, John, don't give. It's a great song. You guys know you love that song. Like no one else. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, that's right. That's a great. The 80s had some great tunes that we don't really ever hear anymore. You know, that song and The King of Wishful Thinking. And there's all kinds of stuff that you heard in the background or on movie soundtracks. That uh, yeah, you're making fun of your team. You're making fun of me right now, just like Mike and John are making fun of me. But you know what? Part of you is like, yeah, that song's pretty good. That song's pretty, pretty catchy. Um, Michael writes, "Hey, I remember I just told you to have Bastardi on during Harvey last year. My memory's not so great anymore, but once in a while something bubbles up from that primordial swamp." Well, Michael, as I said, my friend. It's like you read my mind. We had Bastardi on yesterday. I hope you enjoyed hearing from him. Really nice guy, too. I, I, I like uh, Mr. Bastardi, and he always has interesting things to say about climate, about storms, about all that stuff. Our brother Darby writes, Hey, brother. Wanted to drop a note about hurricanes and climate change. When I was stationed in Charleston, we had to get underway for Andrew. The 50-foot waves we faced on a Knox-class frigate were daunting to say the least, also wanted to mention the most unbelievable self-importance on the, of the left on climate change is breathtaking. As I'm sure you know, the planet could shake humanity off like a speck of dust. It will be here long after we are gone, just as it was here long before we arrived. Darby, absolutely true. And as always, my brother, good to hear from you. Thank you for writing in. Shields high. Rob writes, Norm MacDonald does voiceover for cartoons. Does he lose his job? You know, Rob, I don't know what cartoons... I think the answer to your question is it depends on who's making the uh, who's making the decisions wherever, you know, for those for those cartoons and the people in charge at that network, whatever it might be. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not up on on the latest Norm McDonald projects. Paul writes the following. Um, whoa, hold on. Buck, great job highlighting the MSM's bias in blaming the president for everything. Perhaps it warrants a new audience participation segment on your show, mocking the MSM. It could be entitled, Today President Trump is to Blame For. Examples, Today President Trump is to blame for a three-horned cow being born in Brazil, etc., etc. 
Uh, P.S. You could even do two versions of it on Rising. Hey, Crystal, did you hear about that three-horned cow being born in Brazil? Crystal, what? No, Buck, yeah, they say it's Trump's fault. Crystal, okay, I don't like Trump. Uh, Buck, exactly. Crystal, I feel Trump's policies on the environment make him responsible for Florence. Buck, that's not serious. Crystal, no, I am serious. Buck, okay, <laughs> I think we get the idea. Paul, Shields High, thank you for writing in on this one, my friend. Good to hear from you. Um, Mike writes, I think you're right about Jack Ryan's girlfriend being European or something. In episode five, Jack and his girl having dinner out, I heard a slight accent in her speech. Uh, you know, I, I heard it too. And I, I got to tell you, I don't know what it is with we can't get more American actors playing Americans. Uh, but I, I find the whole thing kind of annoying, to be honest with you. Her name is Abby Cornish, which certainly doesn't sound uh, particularly um, f- oh, yeah, she's Australian. Told you. I knew it. I knew it. We'll do it live. I knew it. Yeah, that's right. She's an Aussie. I-, I can tell, folks. They think they're like, yeah, I can do an American accent. This is how Americans talk. No, it's not. That's how somebody's used to having a really open mouth. Like that, blah, blah. That's how they tr- that's how they think Americans talk. So I could do an American accent. There we go. My name is Bob. I'm from Minnesota. That's what they... I've, I have a lot of English friends, true. And that's always their their version of the American accent. And as we all know, a British accent... One day, uh, we will all agree, America, we will all agree to stop, whether subconsciously or not, thinking that a British accent makes somebody smarter. We, we should come together on this one. Just like we should, we should make it illegal for there to be uh, car alarms... We should decide that there should be no more extra points added to somebody's IQ, theoretically at least, because of their British accent. It's just crazy. By the way, some of you pointed out yesterday that I, I think I mixed up, as I was speaking in my head, uh, two books that I both, uh, both of which I really recommend, both fiction books, Michael Crichton's State of Fear and Tom Clancy's Debt of Honor. I think I've either mixed up the books or the authors when I was talking about flying a uh, 747 into the White House. Uh, that's that's the end of Dead of Honor. I think I said State of Fear. State of Fear is about climate change. Michael Crichton, uh, who said that in his career he wrote about abortion, he wrote about uh, genetic engineering and cloning, and I mean, some, some very hot-button topic stuff, said that the both the hatred and venom that he got from strangers and, and the death threats for writing about climate change and the the sort of shunning from the elites that he got for writing about climate change in a way that it exposed the hysteria about it. Uh, it, it, it was crazier than anything else he ever dealt with in his career. As you can tell, I've watched a lot of, uh, not only have I read almost all of Crichton's uh, books, but I've also read a lot of his and watched a lot of his speeches. I, I thought he was a very interesting guy. You know, at one point he had the number one movie in the country, the number one TV show in the country, and the number one book in the country. It was Jurassic Park, the movie, Jurassic Park, the book, and ER, the TV show. So the guy's got skills. It's kind of an EGOT before there was an EGOT. Uh, and it, Well, it's a simultaneous EGOT, really. Uh, if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. You can Google it. Uh, Mike writes, I think you're right about Jack. Oh, yeah, sorry, I already said that one. Peter writes, yep, State of Fear is a great book. It exposes the delusions of global warming and climate change. Absolutely, Peter. It, it's... It's also just a really good read. Uh, Crichton was a master of his craft, and I think people should go back and check out his book. Uh, 
Matthew writes, Hi, Buck. Love the show. Shields high. I have a solution for, by the way, just as an aside, I love when people write me. They're like, what is this? She's high that everyone yells. And like new people come into the Freedom Hut and they're like, what is this? She's high. What is that? I'm always, and I I send out usually a a little note to those folks to explain to them the origins of this, uh, which is just, just takes us back to the earliest days. Those special Saturday shows when I was beginning all this madness. Anyway, it's Shields High, as you all know. Um, Matthew writes, I have a solution for the social media bias problem. We know government regulations will never work as the right is never as good at that game, but we can bring them down on campaign finance. The subversive material support Google, Facebook, and Twitter gave Hillary was worth millions of dollars. Was any of that direct campaign aid reported as in-kind donations? Prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. If they want to be an arm of the DNC, then fine, but they need to report it and limit it to the existing amounts per the law. Don't let them get away with this double standard anymore. Thanks, Matt in Wisconsin. Matt, I don't know if that is going to work legally speaking, but I like I like where your head's at on that one. Uh, at least it's fun to try to own the libs with the law when you can. I don't know enough about campaign law, whether that would be, I think we'd have to look at the specifics. Are they really making a, a contribution of some kind? There's, there's obviously going to be a free speech challenge to that. I, I don't know, my friend, but you're thinking outside the box and you're obviously a smart guy. So thank you for writing that in. Uh, Mimi writes, Buck, I live in Castro Valley and I know Rudy Peters, the politician who was attacked. A couple of important things. First, Peters is running against Eric Swalwell. Uh, Eric is a Pelosi protege. He is frequently on TV saying mostly stupid liberal talking points. You have pointed out that the guy is an idiot. He needs to be defeated. The second point is that Rudy is a veteran He is truly conservative, not a rhino, and he won in an open primary. It's very unusual for a Republican to make it to the runoffs. It's usually two Democrats to choose from. Finally, he deserves our support. It would be great if you could interview him. Thanks for your great shows. Uh, You're getting so popular. I can't get through on the phone anymore, but that's a good thing. Keep up the great work. Mimi from California. Mimi, I know we... We, uh, we focus so much on the show sometimes. We're not taking as many calls these days, but that's why roll call is so important. And uh, so please do continue to send me your messages here on Facebook. Um, and thank you for that, Mimi. Always good to, uh, to hear from you. Dan writes, Buck, I think it was Tom Clancy's book, Dead of Honor, where the Japanese radical crashed into the Capitol during a joint session of Congress. Did Crichton write something similar as well? I'm a podcast listener. At any rate, shields high. Now, Dan, yeah, I just corrected myself. I, I think I just I jumbled it up uh, when I was talking about it on the radio. Sometimes that's gonna that's gonna happen. Uh, Aries, Aries always has strong opinions. That much I know. Come on, Cabin Boy and Joe versus the Volcano aren't even memorable. And how's that TV series Battlestar Galactica working out for you? It's not bad and sometimes good. But whoever told you it was the greatest TV show of all time needs to watch more TV. Aries, I, I haven't really gotten into it yet. So I need to I need to check it out. And uh, I will take your advice on Cabin Boy and Joe vs. the Volcano. I, I don't... Those have never crossed my radar, which is not a good thing. Aaron writes, Dear Buck, I just started watching Jack Ryan. I've decided I'm going to imagine this as your backstory and that they cast Krasinski to play the younger you. His hair doesn't do yours justice, though. 
shields high. Well, let me say, Aaron, that there are some interesting there are some interesting parallels between Buck Sexton and Jack Ryan in the Amazon Prime series of Jack Ryan and his t- time at the CIA. Uh, Buck Sexton and Jack Ryan both lived in Georgetown while they were CIA analysts. Buck Sexton and Jack Ryan both rode crew in college. And Buck Sexton and Jack Ryan both have quite a swoop of hair. Uh, beyond that, I'm not sure there's that there's a lot of a lot of similarities. Um, but uh, there's some there's some there's some crossover. I like where your head's at. That's gonna be it today, folks. Excited to be with you tomorrow. Please tell people about the show. Tell them they can listen to the podcast. They don't have to be able to listen on radio. They can listen to the podcast anytime. And we're getting that podcast out hours earlier now than we were before. So do check it out. iTunes, the best place for it. The Buck Sexton Show on iTunes. See you tomorrow. Shields high. The FBI calls home title theft one of the fastest growing crimes. Brace yourselves because having your credit card stolen is nothing compared to the hell you're in for once an identity thief takes control of your home's title. Folks, you know that stuff is stored online these days, including your home's title, and domestic and international cyber thieves are hunting American homeowners because they've got a lot of equity in their homes and they like to borrow your money using that, okay? It's not a hard process. I've seen how home title lock walks through how the bad guys do this. They take you off your home's title, replace you with an alias, then borrow every penny against your home's equity. This is a nightmare. I mean, imagine getting these bills in the mail, and that's the first time you're going to even find out this has happened. Identity theft programs do not protect you. For just pennies a day, though, Home Title Lock protects my most valuable asset, my family's home. Register now for a free analysis and discover if your home's title has been compromised. That's a $60 value free. Visit HomeTitleLock.com. That's HomeTitleLock.com.